0: Take your Bible and turn with me to the book of James, the book of James, chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, look around, please, under the seats, you'll find one. They're there for you, for your use. And I turn to that portion, we call the book of James, and please follow as I read verses 2 through 12. You know by now that James' main theme, subject in these verses is trials, something we all face. Uh, One author recently penned the following, you and I live in a very broken world where there is trouble on every side. Your body and mind are affected by the fall and do not always work as they should. Your family and friendships will not work as they were designed. The government over you does not function as it was intended to function. Your church is filled with flawed people yet in need of redemption. The broken physical environment suffers under the weight of the fall. There is no escaping it. You are located in a place where trouble of some kind will find you each and every day. It's precisely what James says in verse 2. He warns us of trials of various kinds. And he tells us that when we fall into these trials, we are to count it all joy. We are to consider it all joy. And to help us to do that, he points us to four tremendous truths. We have covered the first three. Today, we're going to look at the fourth by way of very brief reminder, the first truth, God's purpose, verses three and four. You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. When it comes to trials, God is not an idle bystander. He is not an idle spectator. He is not indifferent. Uh, On the contrary, the trials into which we fall, are actually the result, the fruit of God's design and good plans and purposes for us. That's the first truth to which James points us. The second truth is God's provision. That when we fall into these trials, we are in need of wisdom, verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, wisdom from above, James three seventeen, And God will give this wisdom precisely what we need for the hour. And he will give it generously to all without reproach. It will be given to him. And then the third truth to which James points as God's perspective. We need to see things from the divine vantage point. Verse 9. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation. Because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. In other words, we are not to value this life. We are not to define joy and contentment based on the temporary fleeting circumstances in which we find ourselves. But rather, we are to view reality. We are to understand this life. And we are to define joy and peace and contentment by our position in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the first three truths. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. How can I possibly do that? Focus on God's purpose. Focus on God's provision. Focus on God's perspective. And now, fourthly, he brings the section, his treatment of trials, to a conclusion. And he directs our thoughts now to a fourth truth. God's promise, and we find it in the 12th verse. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. You have a fantastic, I think it's fantastic anyway, little quote from Charles Haddon Spurgeon in the sermon notes, and it is dictating much of what I want to accomplish this day. Here it is from the pen of Spurgeon. God never gives his children a promise which he does not intend them to use. In other words, he does not give us promises for us to simply put on the shelf And kind of stare at them. No, he gives us promises for our present day use. In verse 12, we have a promise. There it is. Black and white. It is clear. Blessed, happy is the man. It's generic. Sisters, put woman in there if you like. Blessed is the man. Blessed is the woman who remains steadfast under trial. For, because, when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. We're supposed to make use of it. The promise is given to us right now. Yes, it pertains to the future. We realize that, but it is actually for our benefit in the present. That's where I want to go this morning. That's really where I want to end up. I want to give you some pastoral counsel as to how we are to apply this promise. But first things first, let's lay the foundation. Let's get there and just notice, hone in, focus, stare at verse 12. And you'll see there are three key phrases and let's make certain we understand them. I want to make two observations. I'm going to be very quick here. At least I think I'm going to be very quick. Two observations on each phrase. Here's the first phrase. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. Two observations to make sure we understand it and we're getting it. Observation number one, blessedness. What James is holding out to us, what God is holding out to us through James' instrumentality, blessedness, happiness is not the result of avoiding trials. This is paradoxical, my friends. And it flies in the face of conventional wisdom. Blessedness is not the result of avoiding trials. It is the result of what? I'm not making this up. You know it. It's right there in the text. It is the result of what? Enduring trials. Until we learn that, we're in for a whole lot of pain. Until that is impressed deeply within our hearts and our minds, we are setting ourselves up for terrible discouragement and disillusionment. The key to happiness, blessedness, does not lie in avoiding, minimizing, staying away from trials. No, it is found precisely by enduring through trials. More on that in a moment. Observation number two is this from that first phrase. Awards are powerful Motivators. Awards are powerful motivators. Blessed. Blessedness. What every man, every woman, every boy, every girl is pursuing, consciously, unconsciously, whether they realize it or not, it is man's pursuit, happiness. Well, here it is, this award. It is held out to us, blessedness. And it is held out to us to motivate us. We will labor hard and forfeit much in pursuit of something we really value. Did you catch it? We will labor hard and forfeit much. In pursuit of something we really value. There's the first phrase. A couple of observations. Second phrase. Middle of the verse. For when he has stood the test. He will receive the crown of life. Again, two observations. The first is this. It seems awfully simple to state. But um, again, it is a hard lesson learned. Life is a test for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. When does the crown of life come at the end of life? Therefore the award, the crown of life is not given as we withstand tests, trials confined to, to space in this life, but is actually given when, when life is done, the race is over, which tells me what, that my entire life Is what? It's a test. How many students would love to get through school without ever sitting a test? Sitting an exam? You think that's funny. How many Christians want to get through life without ever sitting a test? It is impossible. The Christian life, by design, is a test. It is a trial. Acts 14, through many tribulations, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. And so life is a test. But here is the most encouraging truth. It is simply this. In the midst of this test, God has put me here. I have that confidence. He has put me here. I know that Firstly. He will teach me. I know that secondly. He will change me, sometimes kicking and screaming, but He will change me. I know that thirdly. He will deliver me if it pleases Him. I know that fourthly. And He will what? He will keep me for a salvation that is waiting to be revealed in the last day. I know that fifthly, and I know all of that, and what encouragement it gives me as I live the Christian life, Christian sojourn, embracing it as one long examination. The second observation I make out of that second phrase is this. There is a crown. Oh, there is a crown waiting for those who stand the test. A crown. Is it a literal crown? I, I don't think so. If that's a deal breaker for you, then fine. It's a, it's a literal crown. Uh, I'm more inclined to think that it's synonymous for the, for the kingdom of heaven, eternal life. Uh, we know the scriptures tell us, 1 Peter 5, 4, that it's a crown of glory. Which speaks of what? I think it's splendor. It's a crown of glory. We you know, secondly, from 2 Timothy 4, 8, that it's a crown of Righteousness. Speaks of what? I think it's foundation. That God is just. And he is the justifier of those who put their faith in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we know thirdly from our text, and we know it again because we read in Revelation chapter 2, verse 10, that it is a crown of life. And I think that speaks of what? It's duration. A crown of glory, splendor. It involves a kingdom. A crown of righteousness, fixed in God's justice, in a crown of life, meaning it is something that awaits us which knows no end. Here's the third phrase, which God has promised to those who love him. Again, just to be consistent, two observations. Here's the first. The promise is certain. God has promised. We sing it. The work which his goodness began, the arm of his strength will complete. His promise is yea and amen, and never was forfeited yet. Absolute certainty. The second observation is this. The promise is for whom? It is for those who love God. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, If I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. It is possible to endure trials out of sheer stubbornness and nothing else. Sheer self-will. That And is not what James has in mind. James has in mind those who persevere, those who endure out of what? Love for God. Hence, the promise is extended to a very specific group of people. Yes, this promise of blessedness for remaining steadfast, this blessedness entailed in what? This crown of life, which will be given to all those who stand the test. But who specifically does James have in mind? Those who love God. J.C. Ryle penned, A couple hundred years ago, we may know much. So we might have a lot going on in here. We may do much. We may profess much. We may talk much, work much, give much, and go through much and make much show in our religion and yet actually be dead before God from lack of love. Without love, we are no better than painted wax figures, lifeless, stuffed beasts in a museum. You think of the Lord Jesus and Peter, it's recorded where, John 21, right? After the resurrection. And you think of what transpired before the crucifixion. And Peter, denying all knowledge of the Lord Jesus three times, then they have a face-to-face after the resurrection on the shores of the sea, don't they? And the Lord Jesus directs a question to him three times. What is it? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It is an extremely important question. Because you see, love is the indisputable evidence of faith. So think through this with me. We're going to work through this. It is difficult, but it is necessary. Love is the indisputable evidence of faith. Uh, Love proves the reality of, um, of what we say, what we think, what we do. And so imagine, for example, this scenario, a married couple, and imagine the man uh, says to his wife, I love you. I love you. But this man, this husband, actually uh, spends all of his time with another woman. How are we supposed to understand his words, I love you? It becomes a little ridiculous, doesn't it? Imagine he says to his wife, I love you. But he completely ignores and disregards her needs and interests. I'm confused. In what sense does he really love her? All Right? Suppose he says to her, dear, I love you. But he actually insists on living his life however he pleases. Uh, Again, I'm beside myself to understand what exactly is running through his mind when he says to her, I love you. All right, that made good sense to us? Okay, let's shift it up, mix it up a little bit. Here we go. You say you love God, okay? Yet you're involved in an immoral relationship. I'm confused. What do you mean when you say you love God? I'm sorry, I cannot compute that. I don't understand what that means. You say you love God. I I trust this isn't true of anybody here. But you're, you're out drinking yourself into a mindless stupor on Friday night. And here playing church on Sunday morning. Again, it's a very legitimate question. In what sense? Please define it for me. In what sense? What do you mean? When you say you love God, individual says he loves God, yet he's filled with rage, rage toward her, anger toward him, envy of them, bitter toward everyone. Again, in what sense does he really love God? An individual is chasing after money, success, power. These are the clear priorities in his life, her life, yet he says he loves God. Again, I need clarification. What does that mean, you love God? A woman says, a man says, you know, I love God. This person never, ever spends any time alone with God, with his word open before him, before her. What do they mean by love? Are you with me? Are you understanding me? I mean, this, 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 is, this is so important for us. And James, James is really going to hit the nail on the head and drive it home in the second chapter when we get there. But you see, in James' thinking, Paul's thinking, in Scripture in its entirety, the, 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 there are very key solid links on a chain when it comes to the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. And we cannot separate these. It's impossible to divorce these. And so we think of the gospel and what it means to be a Christian. And here's the starting point. You know, by God's spirit, I come to Calvary's cross. And when I come to Calvary's cross, what do I see? I I, I see God's love for sinners. And I see God showing his love by offering up his son, making a public display of his son as a propitiation in his blood. And I see the physical agony and torment. I hear, even more importantly, the torment of his soul, the anguish of his heart, and I understand it is my sin that nails him there. And I understand, okay, I I see it. He has died there to pay the penalty for my sin. There you go. That's the first step. And so what do I do? I believe. I believe. I believe that there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. I believe that the Lord Jesus died for me. I believe that the Lord Jesus can wash away my sins. I believe the Lord Jesus can give me the peace and the assurance that I've been longing for and looking for. I believe that I can now come to a holy God who is angry, filled with anger every day towards sinners. I can now come to him through this mediator, the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe. But you know what? That faith now produces what? Love. Because I'm so enamored with the one who first loved me. I'm so thrilled with this display, this manifestation of divine love for me, that having believed, my faith is now manifested in love for the one who loved me and gave himself up for me. And now how do I show that love? I bend my will to his will. It's called what? Obedience. All right? That sound pretty good? Work backwards. If I have not bent my will to his will, and if I am living, as I like to say, however I jolly well please, what does that mean? Work backwards. These are inseparable links in the chain. It means what? I don't really love him. And if I don't really love him working backwards, what does that mean? means I've, I don't really, I might say it, maybe i said it a hundred times, but I don't really believe in him. And if I don't really believe in him, going all the way back to the beginning, what does it mean? I've never really stood at the foot of the cross, and I really don't get it. I might understand it cognitively, and I might even be able to write an essay on it and blog about it and put up Facebook posts, but I don't really understand it because if I really understood it, what would it lead to? Faith. Resting in Christ, receiving Christ, embracing Christ, which would then show itself of necessity in what? Love. Love of necessity would show itself in what? Obedience. We're not talking about perfection. What are we talking about? We're talking about a life of repentance this is really what we're talking about when we're speaking of obedience. Obedience. We're speaking of a life of repentance, poverty of spirit. I now know who I am and I know my sinful self. Well, at least I think I know myself, but I'm sinful even beyond my wildest dreams and imaginations. And so my life becomes one of poverty of spirit and humility in the sight of God, yearning and longing to know the will of God and do the will of God. When I fail to, the spirit of God brings that home, pricks my conscience, and there's repentance. And I, I, Luther said the Christian life is a life of repentance. Far too many Christians think repentance is something I did when the day I was saved. We never stop repenting as Christians. It's an entire life of repentance and a life in which we pursue with all sincerity of heart, obedience. Do you see the four links in the chain? This promise is given to whom? Those who love God. And so it is worthwhile. It is certainly worthwhile for me to ask publicly this day, my friend, do you love God? Really? Come now. Do you really love God? Do you love the Lord Jesus Christ? As you examine your life, if the answer to that question is no, then tenderly, I I put it before you, that you need to go back to the beginning. You need to go back to the start. You need to return to Calvary's cross, and there you need to see the wounds of Christ and the suffering of Christ for your selfishness, for your drunkenness, for your immorality, for your bitterness, for your envy, for your rage, for your malice, for your laziness. You fill in the blank. For our utter sinfulness, we have to see the cause at Calvary's cross and understand that this is the only way by which we can be saved and believe. And where faith firmly takes root, it shows itself forth in love. And where love has taken root, it shows itself forth in what? Well, those who love me words of Christ, John 15, those who love me keep my commandments. There's the third phrase, the second observation. We've made our way through it all, the verse in its entirety. We now arrive at where I wanted to get at, how to make use of this promise. Again, just by way of remembrance, that little pithy statement from the pen of Spurgeon, God never gives his children a promise Which he does not intend them to use. As Christians, how can we make use of this promise in verse 12? Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. We make use of this promise by thinking about it. I think it's that straightforward. We benefit from this promise. Yes, it concerns something that's going to happen in the future. But we benefit from it now by actually thinking about it, dwelling on it. Or as one author has suggested, daydreaming about it. As I thought on that the past week, the week before, I was a, I was a, I was a little bit convicted. Actually, I was quite a lot convicted in many ways. Um, I do not spend the time I ought to spend thinking about eternity. I do not meditate to the extent I ought to meditate, think on and consider, dream about uh, what eternity will mean, what eternity will hold to the extent I ought to. I was giving this some thought this past week and, um, I tried to do a little daydreaming. I tried to do a little daydreaming on this crown of life, the kingdom of heaven, and all that awaits us. And I tried to do this because I think this is the pastoral application of what James is getting at here, that when we find ourselves in trial, to remain steadfast in trial, to pass the test, we must be focused on the award, the crown of life. And so indulge me. I did this this past week, and here's I want to share with you what I came up what I came up with. And I pray this will be edifying and encouraging on at least a couple of levels. Daydreaming this past week, I was daydreaming about a renewed world. I think that's part of the crown of life, a renewed world. Very easy yesterday morning. I don't know what time it was, sun up, and I was out and. Um, Maybe you noticed this as well if you were up at that time, but the uh, full moon in the west, the sky just above the tree line, the horizon, full moon, as it was getting light. So that's the western sky, eastern sky, blood red moon, uh, sun. And there they were, and there I stood between them, the two of them, this blood red sun over here, and the full moon on this horizon. And um, it was simply spectacular. The thought of a new world, what it will be, what it will entail. I mean, I think we have glimpses of it in the present world. We can look at the snow-capped mountains, right? The rugged coastlines, mighty canyons. The fertile valleys, the gentle hills, the dew-soaked fields, the majestic forests, the rushing rivers, the placid lakes. Go wherever your mind goes. You've traveled. You've been around. I hope you've at least been out of Texas at some point, And you've seen different wonders and places. And let it captivate the mind's imagination that these are but foretastes, sh- glimmerings if you like. Of a new heavens and a new earth, a new world that is coming. Someone has said, like the spring thaw, turning sheets of ice into fresh running water. The power of God will extend to every square inch of this world and turn every curse into a blessing. The lion, the witch, and the wardrobe right? You've seen it. You've read it. The four children are in Narnia, right? Aslan is on the move. And what starts to happen? Because Narnia has been in winter's grip for as long as anyone can remember. What starts to happen? There is a tremendous thaw. Why? Because the curse is being broken. Oh, we need to think on that. We need to use our God-given imagination once in a while and wonder. At what that world will be like. This past week, I found myself daydreaming about seeing others. All right? That's a pleasant thought, isn't it? I am looking forward to rubbing shoulders. I'll mention a few. I hope none of the others take offense with Moses, Abraham, Joseph, right? David, certainly. Who doesn't want to meet David? And uh, Paul, Peter. Peter countless other saints. I'm looking forward to speaking with Calvin. It might be a long line, but I'm, I'll get in the line and I'll wait my turn. Perkins. Swinnick Spent a lot of time with Swinnick. Actually looking forward to standing in front of the guy and talking to him. Bunyan. I'm looking forward to embracing grandparents, right? Great-grandparents and many other relatives who have passed on. Hey, I'm looking forward to seeing the face of a child whom I have never met. I'm looking forward to that. Really looking forward to that. Daydreaming about these things. I've been daydreaming about a resurrected and glorified body. This one's starting to fall apart, folks. Can't make it out to soccer on a Saturday night. Just too many aches and pains. I am looking forward to a resurrected and glorified body. Our bodies are perishable, dishonorable, and weak, says Paul. They will be raised imperishable, honorable, and strong. No imperfections. As I look out, I see one or two. No imperfections in that day. No abnormalities. No diseases. No weariness. No forgetfulness. The tube fed will enjoy eating. What a marvelous thought. The wheelchair bound will enjoy walking. Those who can't speak will enjoy singing. The physically, mentally, and emotionally damaged will be made whole. Words, 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 words. Words such as abuse, syndrome, degenerative, malignant broken, inoperative, will simply, poof, disappear. That's worth thinking about. How much of our vocabulary will we lose when we are handed the crown of life? How much? I I reckon a good chunk of our vocabulary will be gone. We'll have absolutely no use for it. There will be no need for MRIs. X-rays, painkillers, bypasses, epilim, physiotherapy, chemotherapy. Our bodies will rise indestructible, never to decay. Oh, autism, where is your victory? Oh, cerebral palsy, where is your sting? Oh, leukemia, where is your victory? Oh, MS. Where is your sting? Gone, completely gone. I've been daydreaming this past week about being free from sin, my sin. My greatest frustration is my ongoing struggle with sin. It feels so much a part of me that it is hard to imagine life without it. I feel like I'll be a completely different person. It won't be me, right? Blank stares, no one can relate. I think you can relate. Think on it. It is such a part of me, and it is such a part of you, what will it mean to be rid of it? We are heading toward a day when we will no longer be selfish, angry, envious, bitter, arrogant, irritable, and the list goes on and on and on. God will, says one preacher, make us into a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. A bright, stainless mirror which reflects back to God perfectly, though, of course, on a much smaller scale, his own boundless power and delight and goodness. That's worth daydreaming about what it will mean to be free from sin couple more. I've been daydreaming about being free of trials. All of the illness, depression, slander, persecution, doubts, loneliness, unemployment, sorrow, oppression, adversity, and weariness will be gone. All of the accompanying fear, anguish, turmoil, anxiety will simply disappear. On that day, you will find that the worst things that have ever happened to you will in the end only enhance your eternal delight. That bears worth repeat, That's worth repeating. On that day, you will find that the worst things that ever happened to you will in the end only enhance your eternal delight. And let me conclude with one more. I think this is maybe the sixth or seventh. I have been daydreaming about seeing Christ. Now we really get to the heart of this crown of life. Father of Jesus, love divine, what rapture will it be? Prostrate before thy throne to lie and gaze and gaze on thee. Christ will, says Paul, be our all in all He will be at the center, and everything else will fade into the background like stars eclipsed by the rising sun. Oh, daydream, my friend. Daydream, daydream, daydream. The old Puritans called it heavenly-mindedness. Have you heard that expression? Someone once said, I won't say who, but uttered the following, you're too heavenly-minded. To be of any earthly good, you're too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. I'll use a, a good old, a, <laughs> an antiquated English term. That's tosh. That is complete tosh. You can Google that one later to figure out what that means. You're too heavenly-minded to be of any earthly good. When in actual fact, the opposite is true. We will never be of any earthly good until precisely we are heavenly-minded daydreamers as to what awaits us, what is coming. Without heavenly-mindedness, we will never, ever endure persecution. Never in a million years. Without heavenly-mindedness, daydreaming, we will never accept the loss of loved ones, the loss of material possessions. Without heavenly mindedness, we will never be zealous for the salvation of souls. Apart from heavenly mindedness, we will never discipline ourselves for the purpose of godliness. We'll be unwilling to sacrifice anything because we'll simply be living for our ease and comfort. Oh, without daydreaming, we will never, ever, ever be able to stand fast in trials. That's the essence of verse 12. Oh, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. Oh, daydreaming. Daydreaming about a new world. Daydreaming about what it will mean to see others who have gone on before us. Daydreaming about a resurrected, glorified, perfected body, like the body the Lord Jesus presently has. Daydreaming about sin, the eradication of sin. Daydreaming about a life and eternity free of all trials. And daydreaming about standing before the Lord Jesus Christ. A few words to conclude from one of my favorite hymns. The heavens shall glow with splendor, but brighter far than they, the saints shall shine in glory as Christ shall them array. The beauty of the Savior shall dazzle every eye in the crowning day that's coming by and by. Our pain shall then be over. We'll sit and sigh no more behind us all of sorrow. And not but joy before. A joy in our Redeemer as we to him are nigh in the crowning day that's coming by and by. The crown of life to all those who stand fast under trial. Our great God in glory above. We now come before you in prayer. And we humbly request your blessing upon what we have Pondered together from your word. Again, as always, we seek from you eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to receive. For unbelievers in our midst, may you make Christ great in their estimation this day. May they see themselves as you see them, dead in their trespasses and sins. And may they see the eternal life that is held forth to them for all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. For the weary this day, those who find themselves in the midst of trials, trials with no end in sight, may this great promise be a source of encouragement, a source of strength. May it have its desired effect as by the Holy Spirit you apply it deep within and help them to persevere in the way. And for each of your children here, we do pray for enlarged minds and hearts, that truly you would give us a vision of all that awaits us, give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding that we might truly know the hope to which you have called us. And this we ask for the furtherance of your kingdom among us, and for the glory of your eternal name, and in the matchless name of Christ we ask it. Amen.